To be honest, I wasn't quite sure if another entry in the proposed series was my cup of tea. And yet, here we are. Another episode of The Narnia Reset. It is tea time, and we are continuing the discussion. The original intent was to dissect each book in the Narnia series in chronological rather than publication order, a goal which I still aim to keep. But then, in thinking through The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe over the last so many weeks, I found myself frozen at the lamppost, unable to proceed. The lamppost, most of you will recall, is where the little Pevincy girl Lucy met the fawn, Tumnus. Already we are confronted with a theological quandary. Quick reminder, my intent is not to rehearse the plot. As the very name suggests, the Narnia Reset invokes my curiosity concerning past reset events within our own realm as expressed through Lewis's Narnia, though I suppose I'll nab some esoteric concepts along the way. Speaking of which, the Fawn manages both aims. It is at the lamppost where I am confronted with another sort of reset event in the proposition of universal salvation, or in the very least, the potential for such a concept to exist. We might as well chalk this one up to a mystery of heaven. At any rate, Lewis has Lucy meeting a fawn by a lamppost. He invites her home for tea and toast as well as sardines and cake. The girl accepts his offer indiscreetly following him into the woods of all places. And what do you suppose is being suggested in all of this? On a side note, I'm curious as to who you think Tumnus might be in these five paintings, but also what he is up to. Looks to me like fawns were notoriously known for raping women. I mean, it's difficult reading Babe Magnet into any of these paintings. Ask your local mythology expert, Rape is literally a pastime of theirs. No doubt, that's the tension which Lewis was going for. Pedophilia was on Tumnus's mind. Someone is bound to tell me that I have it all wrong. He was simply kidnapping her because he was on the witch's payroll or something to that effect. Oh sure, child trafficking totally lets him off the hook. That last sentence was sarcastic, by the way. As if drugging the child while playing a pan flute had anything to do with handing her off to his controller. They even have kits for that, you know. Date rape kits. I took a picture of one such liquor cabinet at Chateau de Chambard in France. And just look at it, why don't you? If I'm not mistaken, that's a picture of a fawn carting a little girl off but I would be curious to hear your art analysis. I'm sure she's off for tea and sardines and a roaring fire, but not really. Next, we have yet another photo from that time when I moved my family to Europe. You are staring at a pan monument in the botanical garden directly across the street from Christchurch, Oxford, where Lewis was a resident professor. It would help to know that pan was a fawn. Oh, so I'm quite certain it's pan because those are pan pipes in between two creepy-looking goat heads, thereby designating it an official pan landmark. Nothing says the grounds where little Alice Liddell went around exploring, chasing after the white rabbit or whatever, quite like a monument to pedophilia. Please, somebody stop me before I go off on a Wonderland tangent. There is one other tidbit which I think will benefit the present conversation. 
Actually, it is more like a homework assignment. I suggest you give Ham's Mystery Children a thorough read, or you could watch the presentation, because there you will learn how Ham, the son of Noah, was in fact the original Pan Man. For obvious reasons, I don't really care to repeat all that information here and now. If you'd rather me save you the trouble of having to go read it for yourself, the paper follows Ham's adventures as he goes about Europe, Asia, and Africa, toppling the thrones of his brothers and placing his own children upon them. In turn, Ham's offspring would become the legends whom later generations worshipped as Elohim, Nimrod you already know about. Sorry to drag you through the mythological mud, but then again, perhaps I am not so sorry as clearly Pan presents the very theological tension which Lewis was going for with the fawn and lamppost episode. Fawns are a unique type of spiritual being in so much that they are a Nephilim creature, a human-animal hybrid, indicating that they are as perverted in nature as their origin story would entail. Here is yet another homework assignment for you. You'll have to read my pre-existence paper or listen to any number of the presentations to address why the giant offspring of the Watchers became demons, wandering the earth as evil Ruachoth after the death of their mortal bodies. The reason being is that Alahayam, the father of Ruachoth, prepared Sheol as a holding cell for his children, and the Nephilim were not numbered among them. They weren't his children. But Ham wasn't Nephilim, you'll tell me. And you would be correct. He wasn't. Ham was a son of Cain, who in turn was a son of Hasatan. Again, you'll have to read the paper and then get back to me with your rebuttal. Even though Cain was murdered at the hands of Lamech and Tubal-Cain, his evil Ruach continued on to wander the earth, as his curse declared, even instructing Ham and Nimrod after the deluge. And who knows how many people afterwards, or today for that matter. Now you have been caught up to speed. Mostly. My intent is to discuss C.S. Lewis's salvation theology and Tumnus's decision to overcome his temptation plays perfectly into the professor's worldview regarding the redemptive process. What is more pagan and in fact more unclean and dare I say more demonic than a fawn? In forsaking the witch and aiding her escape, we witness the fawn's conscious decision to turn from a life embedded with sin to the beginnings of holiness. And I stress the beginnings of. In very simple terms, asking for Lucy's handkerchief as a token of their meeting expresses his 180 degree change of nature in so much that he has embraced the gnosis of chivalry, understanding her to be a virtuous lady. What is Lewis saying? Well, it appears as though even unclean Ruakoth can decide in favor of the redemptive process. Lewis doesn't say it at the lamppost, but he needn't have to. I probably don't have to remind anyone that Lewis's greater body of work is all-encompassing. The Great Divorce, as well as Letters to Malcolm, are two sources which further develop his theology. I'll get to those, though before I do, I think it would be helpful to source the scripture as well as the church fathers who helped to shape his worldview. For if he had not hoped that they that were slain should have risen again, it had been superfluous and vain to pray for the dead. And also in that he perceived that there was great favor laid up for those that died in righteousness. It was a holy and good thought. Whereupon he made a reconciliation for the dead that they might be delivered from sin. 
Maccabean Sheni, or 2 Maccabees 12, 44-45. Our first foray into scripture is a naughty no-no text among Protestants. I grew up being told not to read 2 Maccabees because it was a Catholic text. Dun-dun-dun. When in fact, that is misdirection and fake news. The Maccabees were originally written for an audience of Yahudim, whereas the Catholic Church decided to glean from it. Just because the Protestants eventually got around to ripping any number of pages from their Bibles doesn't make it a Catholic text, LOL. And anyways, there it is. The ominous intercession for the dead memory verse, which we were all warned to stay away from. What happened is, the Protestants jointly decided that a person has made his bed, now go and lie in it. To quote from Lewis in Letters to Malcolm, the Protestant maintains that all the dead are damned or saved. If they are damned, prayers for them is useless. If they are saved, it is equally useless. God has already done all for them. That's nearly a direct quote from Maccabeam Shinny, by the way. The writer of Maccabees seems to be agreeing with the Protestants' misguided sentiment, but only from afar in so much that a person would think it vain to pray for the dead if there was no hope for their resurrection. And yet, death itself is not merely the end of salvation, according to the writer. Quite contrarily, like the ever-expanding reality of Lewis's heaven, which we touched on with the magician's nephew. It is only the beginning of one's transformative metamorphosis into the person of holiness. Yahuwah give mercy unto the house of Wenesphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chain. But when he was in Rome, he sought me out very diligently and found me. Yah grant unto him that he may find mercy of Yahuwah in that day. And in how many things he ministered unto me at Ephesus, you know very well. Timothy Sheni or Second Timothy, chapter one, sixteen through eighteen. One can seemingly never have these discussions unless a Bible memory verse is offered for the but Paul crowd, which is why I've thought to include this one. A careful reading has this one is forest fellow already dead. Paul prays for mercy for his remaining household, all of whom still presumably live. But then look what happens next. His prayer shifts towards the dead person. Uh-oh. Paul asks Alahayam that the dead man find mercy of Yahuwah in the coming day. To quote the writer of Maccabeam Sheni again, such a prayer would be deemed superfluous and vain if there was no hope for his resurrection. In the pursuit of holiness... This side of the curtain as well as the next, reconciliation still appears to be a viable option. Lewis was a card-carrying Platonist, in case you haven't picked up on that yet. But then the early Christian theologian Origen of Alexandria, 185 to 254 AD, was somewhat of a Platonist himself. Much has been debated regarding Origen's idea on reincarnation. Some say he was an advocate for the transmigration of souls, whereas others insist there is no solid evidence to make that claim. What is evident is that Origen was an adherence to the idea of pre-existence, something which I wholeheartedly agree with. Accordingly, we were formally created in the image of Alahayam, a past existence which Origen describes as minds inhabiting the all-consuming fire. 
Given the fact that there was a rebellion at some point in his story, our fall into flesh is in fact our opportunity for rehabilitation. From this angle alone, one can see how salvation is a process involving more than one lifetime, because we're also dealing with pre-existence. Origin doesn't end with our present lifetime, though. The salvation story continues on. Here is what we read in Ma'asim. That would be the Acts of the Apostles. And he shall send Yahushua HaMashiach, which before was preached unto you, whom the heavens must receive until the times of restoration of all things, which Elohim has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. Ma'asim, the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 3, 20-21. Origen used passages such as Kepha's speech in Ma'asim 3, to support his cosmic worldview regarding the eventual restoration of all souls. How could Kepha's quip regarding the restoration of all things be a legitimate statement if in fact not everything is restored? Mind you, that means all the fallen souls, including Hasatan, the enemy of Mashiach and Allah Hayyam. And this is what he says, For the destruction of the last enemy, must be understood in this way. Not that its substance which was made by Theos shall perish, but that the hostile purpose and will which proceeded not from Theos, but from itself, will come to an end. It will be destroyed, therefore, not in the sense of ceasing to exist, but of being no longer an enemy and no longer death. For to the Almighty nothing is impossible nor is anything beyond the reach of cure by its maker. Origin, Peri Archon, 365. Sure, Origin doesn't straight up incite Hasatan and the redemption process, though he certainly seems to insinuate as much. He even repeats himself twice so that there is no confusion. In case you missed it, the enemies of Alahayam will be destroyed but not in such a way that they cease to exist. Rather, death itself will no longer exist on the basis that Sheol will be emptied of every last enemy, being eventually redeemed. Gregory of Nyssa, uh, who lived from 335 to 395, was even more bold on this issue. And to quote from Gregory, The originator of evil himself will be healed. Now, just so we're clear, and for what it's worth, I personally do not come to their conclusion, so don't shoot the messenger, regarding the eventual salvation of Hasatan, that is, though I am open to hear them out on the issue. My campaign promise is to carefully consider the matter going forward, and also, whenever it comes to these mysteries of heaven, the good news is that the truth is the truth regardless of how you or I feel about it. Best to seek out wisdom rather than handicapping reality based upon our emotion. I guess the big question for me is whether or not you could actually call Hasatan a son of Allahayam, because he's never once called that. How Hasatan came to be is a question I still have, one that I'm still seeking out. What we are doing here is having a mature adult conversation, by the way. C.S. Lewis agreed with their condolences, but came to a slightly different conclusion, as do I. For Lewis, 
the possibility of universal salvation exist, even in eternity as well as a plethora of alternate worlds, though that doesn't mean everyone will choose it. Indeed, a morally depraved individual, greatly removed from the mind of Allah Hayyam, will be far more inclined towards wickedness in the afterlife rather than good, especially as the timetable of eternity wears on. And in fact, I am of the opinion, based on texts that I've read, that a person's ruakoth immediately starts to conform to their nature. Do they lean towards righteousness or wickedness as soon as they die? I will once again turn your attention to the great divorce. Lewis paints hell as a realm which is locked from within rather than without. That's his way of saying the residents choose to remain there, wanting nothing to do with the holiness of heaven. I mean, think about that. How many people, how many Christians claim one thing, but in reality want nothing to do with holiness? Rooting for Jesus as your home team versus pursuing holiness are two separate things that should not be confused. After taking an easily managed bus trip from hell to heaven, the unnamed narrator of the story meets the famed Scottish author George MacDonald, much as Dante did Virgil. It is then that the narrator shows how MacDonald, being a renowned universalist on the earth, has since tinkered with his doctrine. As a resident of heaven, MacDonald now responds to the narrator, saying, The choice of ways is before you. Neither is closed. Any man may choose eternal death. Those who choose it will have it. The insinuation is that Allah Hayyam offers the opportunity, and in fact hopes for such a result. Regardless, though the possibility of universal salvation exists, realistically, many if not most will shun the opportunity for holiness, even though eternal death confronts them. In this way, Lewis takes a wildly different approach to the notion of purgatory. Purgatory does exist. It is not heaven, nor is it hell. It is rather a place of decision, an entryway to either world, the unclean realm or the holy. Upon learning of that reality, the protagonist states, But there is a real choice after death? My Roman Catholic friends would be surprised. For to them, souls in purgatory are already saved. And my Protestant friends would like it no better. For they say that the tree lies as it falls. All that to say, Lewis agreed with the sentiments put forward by the writer of Maccabeum and Paul's second letter to Timotheus. The sanctification story is not yet necessarily over, even after death. In letters to Malcolm, Lewis unashamedly declares his prayers for the dead when stating, Of course I pray for the dead. The action is so spontaneous, so all but inevitable, that only the most compulsive theological case against it would deter me. And I hardly know how the rest of my prayers would survive if those for the dead were forbidden. At our age, the majority of those we love best are dead. What sort of intercourse with God could I have if what I love best were unmentionable to him? I believe in purgatory. Stop and think about it. Lewis brings up a phenomenal point. The intimacy of our prayer life will indeed be hampered if we expect that Allah Hayyam doesn't want to hear about our loved ones now that they are apparently damned for an eternity. 
Many will doubtlessly rebut and claim of their loved ones, yeah, but they were pagan, as if they're the ones that have it all figured out, doctrinally speaking. I sure don't. Lewis was a critic of the elitist mindset among many Christians, looking down on the primitive religions whom they were proselytizing to. Perhaps I will cover more of his mindset if I ever make it to the last battle, the last book in the Chronicles of Narnia. Suffice to say at the moment that all peoples, whether Christian, Catholic, Muslim, or Buddhist, are made in the image of Allah Hayyam. As such, we all carry elements of truth, even if most are misguided by the lenses of their culture and society. And I would add, more people choose the blessing by being obedient to the moral code in the Torah than they let on. And so, returning once more to the fawn at the lamppost, many will complain that Lewis incorporated pagan ideas into his salvation process without understanding his grand floor argument. From my end, it has taken me years to appreciate it. You can think of it like this. The fawns may have been fallen, unclean ruakoth of paganism in our own realm, and the 70 Elohim assigned to rule the nations may have failed them. But then are they beyond restoration under the priestly and kingly ministry of Yehusha HaMashiach? In answer to that quandary, Origen might say something to the effect that their salvation can be worked out across many lifetimes and in successive worlds. Might Lewis's Narnia be one such world where they might once again have the possibility of being restored? In one decisive moment, Tumnus had a decision to make. And then what of us in our own present world? You probably already know my view. But in case you don't, we inhabit Satan's short season of deception in Revelation 20 after the Millennial Kingdom physically, not just spiritually, but physically manifested itself upon the earth. And I've so far put years of research into showing that to be the case. The 7,000 years of his story has already been fulfilled, with only the eighth great day on the horizon. Can it be said with certainty that we inhabit the same world, or rather epoch if you prefer, as those of the biblical week? Recall my research into the population explosion immediately following the mud flood event. It's a paper which I call Children of the Mud Flood. Another important bullet point is our current location in the outer darkness in relation to the greater realm via the hidden wilderness. So much catching up to do. With everything that has formally been said, I am only speculating, though I will ask, is it possible, remotely possible, that we also who are inhabiting the outer darkness, are being given another opportunity at redemption. If so, then even the plan of salvation plays into the reset.